You're listening to the Pure Desire Podcast, your safe place to find hope, healing, and freedom from sexual addiction, betrayal, and relationship issues. What is up, people? I'm your host, Trevor Windsor, and you're listening to episode 256 of the Pure Desire Podcast. Here joining me, as always, is my co-host, Nick Stumbo. Did I do that? <laughs> oh, did, oh, did I do that? <laughs> Honestly, just like coworker to coworker, if you could do that voice more often, my days would be more enjoyable. <laughs> I'll try to help you out that way, Trev. Yeah. Um, oh, dude, I'm blank. I'm blanking right now. I'm blanking. Well, the the character is Urkel. Thank you. Okay. Um, and I'm yeah. blanking Family on the matters. sitcom. It was Family a Family Matters because yeah. I, I always thought the yeah, sitcom Urkel. name didn't have enough uh, to it. You know, the name Urkel <laughs> was so great, and his character was so great, and the the sitcom <laughs> title was like blah. You know, whatever. Whatever. But he was definitely the character that stands out with his high waisted pants and his you know thick rim glasses and oh my gosh. and just the the problems that would happen and that would be his iconic line, which then got repeated in a. A comedy that's out there right now, I think called Thunder Force hmm. with um, oh, the female comedian. I'm blanking her name. Have you seen Thunder Force? No. She, she brings up the joke, which reminded okay. me of it. And I thought that would be a good podcast uh, got it. intro. Okay, okay good. I, I like it. Uh, okay, so I'm interested to see how you tie it in because um, we had Ashley Jameson, our associate director of women's groups, to talk of, through really seven tips that we've laid out for someone who's starting the recovery from addiction journey. Yeah, you know, and in that sitcom, Urkel was really a static character, meaning he did not change. Mm-hmm. It was his character that created the laughs and and he continued to create problems and just was kind of yeah. oblivious socially, bumbling through life. And and I think in recovery there's a danger of that that we can be the same person just trying to change a behavior or yeah. do things a little differently. Yeah. yeah. And it what we've found is just that doesn't work. We've really got to be a dynamic character, mm-hmm. meaning that there's change happening throughout our life. And that yeah. the the ways we've responded to things in the past, we learn to respond differently. Mm-hmm. We learn to think differently. And that really is, as this episode brings up, I think so well, it's it's a process. And so we don't want to be the same Urkel 10 years from now that we were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what recovery is all about. And so I, yeah. I think if people... Um, are on that recovery journey, whether you're in year one, you know, right now you're yep. on the front end, or yep. maybe you're in year eight, 10, 12. I think these are just good foundational principles to ask the question, am I still engaging in this mm-hmm. way? And obviously if we're in that first year of like really thinking through, okay, h- how can I grow in these areas? Because these really are pretty essential tips for yep. everyone's recovery journey, male, female, yep. whatever yep. your struggle has been. Um, these are, these are some big keys. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, before we get to these seven tips, we've got a good episode for sure, but a few things. Subscribe to the podcast on all the major platforms and give us a review. It helps other people find us. Also, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Pure Desire PDMI. And this episode, uh, full episode will be up on YouTube. Just search Pure Desire Ministries. And then, Nick, in the spirit of really starting this recovery journey, one resource that we do have that really gets people going in the right direction is our Sexual Integrity 101 course. Yeah, we we can't say enough about the impact that Sexual Integrity 101 is having for churches, for communities. You know, when we're in the recovery sphere, it maybe feels like, man, this is just what everybody needs and everybody knows these things, right? But the truth is, so many people, even in the church, are really blind to what's going on with, with sexual struggles and sexual addiction. And that's the aim, really, of Sexual Integrity 101 is to help men and women, pastors and leaders understand through a biblical lens, the nature of our struggle, how it can get so deeply ingrained into people's yeah. patterns and, and why it can be so hard to change. Because the truth is, um, I, I think so many of us, we've heard the right sermons. Yep. We know the right verses. Totally. We've prayed the right prayers. Yep. We've gone forward at the right events. And then when we're still stuck, it's like, what is going on? Yeah. And not only are we asking that, our families are asking that question. And those that are aware of the struggle mm-hmm. are all feeling like, what is happening here? Yep. And I think in so many ways, Sexual Integrity 101 answers those questions mm-hmm. for the struggler, for spouses, and for those that want to lead their communities towards greater health. And so the great thing is it's, it's um, manageable content to be done in a video series for eight weeks. And we just think it's a great starting point for anyone who wants to lean into this journey more fully. Absolutely. So you can get the digital course on our website, DVDs, or a church kit. And those are all available at puredesire.org slash 101. All right, here's our time with Ashley Jamison talking through seven tips as you begin the recovery journey from sexual addiction. 
Ashley Jameson, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I believed you. I believed you that you're happy to be here. That's exciting. You look happy yeah. to be here. You do. You do look happy. Happy's good. Very happy. Um, okay, so uh, as we all start the recovery journey, we know it's not easy. All three of us have been on this journey. It's uncomfortable, nerve-wracking, and then in some weird ways, kind of exciting. At the same time, there's this new, fresh um, healing that we're experiencing, this traction we're experiencing. And so today, for the episode, we just wanted to walk through seven tips on really the front end. As you're starting this recovery journey, what it looks like, some seven tips that will help you get the most out of this healing process. And we do some of these, we've had, um, you know, I've learned that lists are really popular. People like Ooh. lists, like seven tips. Ooh, sign me up. I'll do that. So mm-hmm. we are going to do this one. And then the next episode will be seven tips on the front yeah. end of healing from betrayal. You know, truth be told, I used to stay up just so I could watch David Letterman's top 10. Like <laughs> okay. I didn't care about his yeah. monologue, his <laughs> yeah. guests, like, but the list, give totally. me a list and I'm, I'm in. So yeah. hopefully listeners, you're in for this list. It's That's good. Right. That's right. And it'll be round table today. Ashley will be like, hey. The third tip is this one. So it's going to be great. Uh, let's start with the first one. The first tip on starting the recovery from addiction journey is give yourself time. Let's talk about that. Yeah, this is an important one because I think when we've been struggling, we really want to see uh, change or freedom as an event, like a moment in time yeah. where I, I was struggling and now I'm free. I I had a problem and then I went forward in an altar. I got prayed over and I got better. I I had a struggle, I confessed to someone, it all got out there and it was over. And yep. we've maybe even been conditioned for that if we grew up in a Christian home, that that sometimes has been presented as a way that change happens. And I, I think change can happen that mm-hmm. way. There are obviously many stories out there of miraculous healings, people that encountered God in a fresh new way, people that when they came to faith, they say something just changed in their life. But as we've heard you know, countless stories from men and women, if for whatever reason, it seems to be very, very uncommon in yeah. this area, because as we'll talk about in the episode, change is a process, mm-hmm. change of your yep. brain, change of your patterns, change of those physical neural pathways in your brain that have to be rewired. And, and that takes time. And yeah. so that's why if, if you give yourself time and have that mindset that says, this will be more like a process and a journey and not an event, yep. uh, I, I really think you'll set yourself up for a, a better journey because the truth is you you may encounter some change of behavior right away if you enter into this process. Sure. But the the journey of actually being transformed, of renewing the mind, even from a secular level, we know brain science says that takes time. And yeah. so we just want to recognize there may be things deeper in me that are longer standing than I realize. Mm-hmm. And while we'd love it if it just, you know, kind of a snap yeah. your fingers moment could happen, it's probably going to be a, a process. There'll be ups and downs, highs mm-hmm. and lows. And if we just have that deep breath, grace for myself, that I'm going to give myself time, then it really can be a very, very powerful journey. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I always think about, and you know, listeners can go dig out the podcast and try to find it. When Trevor gives the example of the walking toddler, that God doesn't just shame you know us for falling because He understands it's a process, and He's you know we're working toward you know walking. But I definitely was that teenage love sex addict with an eating disorder. And then I'd hear, I went to a church that was like, had those nights where it was like before Jesus and then after Jesus and it was testimony night. And I always just felt so much shame. So if I could have heard that message way back when that Mm -hmm. just because I'm in progress, doesn't mean that I'm, you know, um, a terrible sinner that's going to go to hell and never recover. Because every time I would feel that shame again, then it would set me back and I'd be like, I just, I just can't do it. So, yeah. I mean, I just say like commit to the whole process and give yourself just space and grace to say, I want to see what happens if I just dive all in for this 10 months and do every tool and, and use everything I'm learning and allow God to work in me. Just give yourself space, even if you fall a few times along the way. Yeah. I think of it for me, just practically in my life, because what what we know is that how long we've been in an addiction or unhealthy um, sexual behavior, sexual brokenness, is that that changes our brain. And so you're changing it negatively over time, and it's developing these really unhealthy habits and ways that you function and you think. And for me, like I think of it almost like, so I had a weight loss journey where over six months I lost a bunch of weight. And what's funny, if you look back after college, like my eating habits, I was doing all these things where I was gaining weight and gaining weight and gaining weight to the point where I was almost 300 pounds. And when I decided to change my eating, 
and I wanted that transformation and that change. It wasn't like I changed my diet and the next day it was like, oh my gosh, I've lost 75 <laughs> pounds. This is incredible. Wow. Like you're having to undo a lot of that work and redo some work on yourself. And so I th- for me, I think of it in that way, that transformation takes time and it takes those daily decisions that ultimately create a trajectory. Because now for me, I completely eat differently. I don't eat the way that I used to. So my life has changed. And so it takes time to really turn that corner from the unhealth that we've had and head toward health. It's going to take a while. Well, that's a good point to remember. There may be a moment or an event where we decide Mm -hmm. to change. We decide to go all in. We decide to go after our healing. We decide to get honest. We decide to sign up for the counselor or the group. That, That can happen in a moment. But then the journey mm-hmm. is, is really where change is at. And it's also an area where I think we get confused in some of our biblical language between eternal realities and the, the current process of sanctification. Because in the current realities, we are set free from sin and death. Totally. We are delivered from the old nature. And, and those things will be eternally true through Christ. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole lot of other language in the New Testament that then talks about, yeah. so get rid of and, and, and remove yourself and make these changes and be transformed. Mm-hmm. And the two kind of can feel like they're intention because like, well, wait, am I free or I'm not? It's like, well, yes, you are mm-hmm. eternally free from sin and right. for all eternity we'll celebrate that. But the, the consequences of sin in your current situation, the way it's impacted your brain yeah. and the patterns and the relationships around you, that will be a process. Absolutely. So, yeah, great. The second tip is to commit to a group experience. And so if someone's been battling this on their own, like, I'm just going to do it by myself, this might be a tough one. So Ashley, why is that such an important tip to commit to a group experience? Yeah, I think, you know, in some way it kind of does line up with just your, like what you were talking about. This would be like group baptism. I'm going public with my, you know, my, my commitment to change. People know I have accountability mm-hmm. people. I'm fully committing. It gives you something to be part of because we're weaker on our own. And there's lots of scripture to back that up. There's yeah. lots of, you know, psychology back there that we are just stronger when we're together and we have people that are like-minded and they can help pull us forward. And so committing to the group experience is that marker that I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to the full group, start to finish, which is nice about having something that starts Mm -hmm. and finishes and has structure because for people who are in addiction, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. You're just going to enter into the process and do what has been proven to work for hundreds and thousands of people. And you're going to fully commit to it. So I would say, make sure that you have the time, look at your schedule. And if you need to clear something, a volunteer opportunity that you're doing, or I even have people in my group that have requested a couple hours off work and their bosses have been gracious to them mm-hmm. um, and, and done that. So look at your schedule to make sure that you've, you've given yourself the time. I would say if your group is smaller or people are missing, still commit to that to keep that momentum each week that yeah. you are fully in using all the tools and committing to the process. Because once you start skipping or saying, oh, I don't need that, or I think I'm done, that's when addiction can start to creep back in. I remember when John was, you know, halfway in the group and he's like, I think I'm good. I don't think I need this anymore. I'd much rather give the time to my family than to be gone. <laughs> and totally. I was like, Oh no, no, no. It's yeah. like, you do not get to stop. Yeah, that's yet. cute, John. That's cute. <laughs> that's cute. But no, yeah. um, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to commit fully to this group process. So um, yeah, I would just say, make sure that you mm-hmm. start and end on time, do all your homework, clear your schedule, whatever you have to do, just give yourself that 10 months to try it. And then if you still need extra help mm-hmm. after that, you know that you've put your full effort into the group experience and now maybe you need something different to try. Yeah. I think of, I think his name's Johan Hari, um, the author and speaker who says that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And, you know, in his TED talk, he talked about the, um, how they did, did this um, experiment on, I think it was, it was rats or it was mice. And they played this out, this addiction scenario. And when they had community around them, that's where they started to see change uh, in these animals. And the, th- the same thing is true. Like if you think about what's motivating our behavior, it's wounds that we've experienced in relationship, you know, the effects of sin on our life. Um, and for us, just running away from that is why we ended up in addiction. And so continuing to run away from relationship actually doesn't make it any better. I think practically we've all experienced that if you've been struggling with unwanted sexual behavior for any amount of time, you've tried things to stop. Like if you don't want to do it, you've tried things on your own and they haven't worked. And so it's, I think of that line again, and I messed it up last time and you helped me, Nick, but the idea of like, um, 
the uh, the idea of trying the same thing over and over again and expecting the same result is you're called a what or it's the, the definition of insanity. Insanity. Thank yes. you. Um, but I think that that's true. So I think that if you lean in and understand how integral connection with other people is to your recovery journey and you understand that it's something that actually fuels your health, then you start to see it different yeah. just because it's so opposite of addiction. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about the concept too of blind spots, that the reason it's called Absolutely. a blind spot is because you can't see it. <laughs> and if you don't think you have any, that's probably evidence that you have blind spots <laughs> exactly. because you can't see them. And so when exactly. we're battling on our own, we're going to be stuck in the same patterns because of those blind spots. We're tripped up by lies we're believing, false ideas we have, patterns that we've not been able to see. Yeah. And in a group environment, we hear other people tell tell their story and we're like, oh, wow, that's me. Mm -hmm. Or we tell our story out loud. And I can't you know, even begin to say how many times this happened to me that I would start to tell a story out loud. And it's like, oh, wow, I've never seen before a lie that I believe or an excuse mm -hmm. that I'm making yeah. or a justification. And We've just been so locked in these patterns, we, we really can't see it alone. And mm -hmm. so a group provides that safe, healthy context of others to, to expose, to turn the mirror on us and help us see things that otherwise we're not going to see. And then add to that, that shame thrives in secrecy. Totally. And so even mm -hmm. if I'm working on recovery in secrecy or isolation, yeah. shame is still going to thrive because when I'm not doing recovery perfectly, and no one does, by the way, when mm -hmm. I'm not doing recovery perfectly, that shame voice just keeps saying, yeah, see, you don't have what it takes. You right. can't do this. Right. And shame will perpetuate behavior. And mm -hmm. so that's why a group environment is so crucial to expose those things to the light and to healthy yeah. relationships that then creates the connection that yep. leads to real freedom and change. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we're always, I mean, we're learning to do life in a different way and we're mm -hmm. always going to have things that pull us, you know, to the left or to the right. And, you know, the hope is that you get to be part of a group and learn how to let people walk with you through your dark struggles and know all of your weaknesses so that then when I say, hey, Heather, I'm starting to have addictive thinking. I can feel my brain like mm -hmm. cycling in a compulsive way. And, I, and that's an indicator to me. And it's really cool to be able to see that you can start identifying things so early and that you've already developed the skills to let people in right away so that you don't have to start straying into some of these addictive patterns. And yep. so I, I just, yeah, group, group, group is so good. Um, okay. The third tip is expect speed bumps. What do we mean by that? Okay. So I, I mean, I feel like Ashley already kind of took it um, when she referenced it, but that idea of learning to walk, I mean, I think of um, so many times we've heard this, that sexual addiction, sexual brokenness can be used as a crutch to make, to make it through life. And so when, um, and I think of our time with Dr. Craig Cashwell, like when you go to help someone who's been using a crutch their whole life, you don't just kick the crutch out from them, from under them and be like, figure it out. Okay. Good luck. See you later. You know, but I think that there's part of that too, that if you've gotten hurt and you've had to use a crutch and you've you start doing physical therapy, it takes time to get your legs back. It takes time for you to figure out how to walk and how to manage life and how to, maneuver throughout the day um, in a healthy way. And I think the same thing's true when it comes to addiction. You need to understand that it's going to take you time, as we've already mentioned, to get your recovery legs, so to speak. Like it'll take you time to figure out how to do this journey and walk in a healthy way. And I think of this illustration all the time to what Ashley was talking about earlier. When my sons were learning how to walk, like they fell a lot. And that doesn't mean that we're encouraging, yeah, go out and relapse and just, you know, make that happen. That's just, you know, oh, well, we'll just dismiss that as a part of recovery. No, but that does mean that you are going to stumble a little bit and you're going to see, oh, you know what? I didn't think about this aspect of my family of origin or this context that, I, that I'm in every single day at work and how that impacts my recovery. Um, and so the idea of like a toddler learning how to walk, it's the same thing. We're learning how to walk and do life in a new way. I think there needs to be some grace that we give ourselves in that scenario yeah. that expect that there's going to be speed bumps and stumbles and you figuring it out because you've never lived life this way before. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the, that's one of the areas where pure desire groups do differ from like a 12-step group mm -hmm. in how we talk about relapse. And we, we say a relapse doesn't have to happen. That's not a part of everyone's totally. journey. But for many people, as they learn and grow, there might be a relapse mm -hmm. and we don't see that as a restart. You know, it's not back, okay, day zero, got to start counting again. And, totally. you know, do I have to give back my 30 day coin? I don't know how that works. But instead yeah. to see it as a relapse may actually be part of your recovery story. Yeah. Because in a relapse, you begin to see very accurately old patterns, maybe something we hadn't identified. 
And also how we respond to the relapse becomes different, where in the past we maybe tried to bury it, ignore it, act like it didn't happen, or kind of do that private confession closet of, okay, I got it out to God and tearfully said how sorry I was, and he right. forgave me. Okay, now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go try harder not to, not to fail again. Right. And, and if we've been stuck in that, instead looking at a relapse as something that I can analyze what happened, um, have a deeper understanding of the preconditions, the things that set me up for it, and then the response to the relapse. Uh, being able to take it to a group, or if I've committed to sharing that with my spouse as mm -hmm. part of our recovery action plan and being open and honest and taking appropriate steps to deal with what I've done uh, by some maybe natural consequences of learning to face some pain that this matters. Um, I don't want to keep doing this. Yeah. And so I choose to enter into some consequences that make me feel the weight of what I've done. Well, that that is all very, very different than what happened in our past relapses. Yeah. And I've said that to so many guys in group of like, Look at the steps you're taking. Look at how you're dealing with this differently. And I know it might feel like you're back at square one. You've done the very thing that you're in group to not do again and yeah. committed to not doing. And you feel, you feel shame. You feel stupid. You feel um, uh, like, like you've just violated all those yep. commitments you've made. But on the other hand, I'll point them towards the positive. Say, you're talking to me right now. You're sharing honestly what happened. In the past, would you have done that? Yeah. You're committing to That's go good. and talk to your spouse. You're committed to this recovery plan. These are all things you wouldn't have done in the past. And your brain is actually going to learn and grow because of them. Yep. And so whether it's a, a relapse or, you know, for a lot of others, it may just be, hey, as I've dealt with one behavior, I may be getting the pornography or the lust or the relationships or the chat rooms, you know, whatever was my thing. As that is being dealt with effectively, we might find other things that start to surface. And it, at first we might feel like, oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? There's just more. And, yeah. But the truth is we were probably using the pornography or the chat rooms or the relationships to cover up for a lot of other things. And as we deal with yeah. one, um, it is exposing just other areas that we've been totally. running to. And, and not to see that as, oh, what's wrong with me? But more of, okay, this is just another layer of the onion, another part of my recovery yeah. that God's going to yeah. direct me into. And I would really encourage you as the listener, if, if you're in that kind of mode, it can feel defeating of like, what else, what more? Yeah, and so I would just right. want to encourage you with hope of like, there will be an end to these. There will be a day where you're like, wow, as, as I'm dealing with this one, there's, there's not more under the surface. I'm, I'm getting the layers where it's now about my old patterns, the lies I believe, and not yet another behavior or yet another place that I'm tempted to stumble. So yeah. keep addressing them as they come up with God, with your group, mm -hmm. with others around you, and really believe that this is just part of that process. It's why it takes time. Totally. Because it's never just one behavior. It's a system of how you've learned to do life. And as you pull one behavior out of the mm -hmm. system, other parts of the system are going to become more obvious. And that's what we're saying here is just expect speed bumps, totally. expect challenges, expect hurdles, but keep facing them with God and with others and you will get to a much better place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. As you say that, I was thinking about addiction. We're running away from the hurdles we're experiencing in life. And when we start recovery, we're just turning around. It's like, oh yeah, those hurdles. Yeah. The ones I was running away from. And we're going to bang our knee there in a few. Are. We're going to kick yeah. a few over. Totally. It's, you know, if you watch a junior high hurdle race, it's almost comical. It's a lot like recovery. But it's painful because like, oh, ah, oh, that bruise. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> but they're getting over them. But keep going. Right? Keep yeah. Going. And yeah, by right. high school, some of those kids are like, wow, they ran that hundred yard hurdle race faster than I could run it with no hurdles. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So the fourth tip as we move in, we're moving forward here is plan for pain. Like dumb, dumb, dumb. What do we mean? Dun, plan dun, dun. Yeah, plan for pain. pain. What do we mean? Yeah. I'm happy to take this hard one because <laughs> this is one of the hard questions I get from spouses, uh, especially on the spouse end, because being the betrayed spouse before mm -hmm. is they don't want to hear that there's going to be relapses involved. They don't want to hear that it's going to get harder before it gets better. Um, and sometimes the hard answer is it just hurts or it's something that has a consequence that is something we have to face, you know, a, a relapse or a speed bump during recovery that is not to, you know, minimize this or anything, but porn or masturbation could have different consequences than one that is illegal behavior or mm -hmm. an affair. And so just the level of um, addiction that you're involved in and the relapses and the recovery, it's all going to look different. And so um, in general, just plan that, like Trevor said, that, you know, the medic, the medication has been taken away and now there's things underneath and 
um, about, you know, a few months in, once you've gained some sobriety, you're going to realize there's still pain there because you're now trying to manage all of your woundedness and Mm -hmm. all of your stress in life without your normal crutch. And so it can be very painful. Um, And I remember in our early recovery, talking to Dr. Ted about that saying like, we never, you know, we never cussed at each other. We never threw things at each other. I mean, I threw things, but not at him. Not that that's okay, but we never threw anything at each other. We never cussed. We never, you know, we were not this level of like angry and crazy. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Ted was like, this is perfectly normal because you're right at that four or five month space yep. where you've given up ways of medicating. Yeah. Even me on the betrayal side, I've given up unhealthy responses to his relapses. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, instead of binge eating or shopping or drinking or whatever I would have done in the past, I'm, I'm having to deal with my emotions yeah. of his relapse. And, and before I learned those skills, I was just angry. Like I'm mad at you. So I'm going to throw this purse at you, mm-hmm. or I'm going to do this. And, um, and that gave us a lot of hope and an ability to keep going forward. Because if you don't know to expect to deal with pain, yeah. then it's really easy to say, why are we doing this stupid group? We were better off before. Now we're worse right. than we were before. And you really aren't. You're just letting all of that dredge come up to the surface so right. you can yeah. get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and you got to learn new tools. Yeah. Yeah. We just had Brandon and Tonya Clark on from Covenant Eyes. And, and he made that comment like, it's a good thing Tonya's not better at baseball because I probably would be really, really sore <laughs> from right. that, that year, right. first year of recovery. And we're not yeah. advocating throwing things. No, we're not trying to no. make light of any kind of no. spousal abuse. We know in some situations- Unless you throw that, 95, like go talk to a major league yeah, team, see what can happen. But Yeah, that may be a serious issue for some, but, but yeah. just recognizing like, I, I think in recovery, many couples look back and go, man, things happen there that we'd never done before mm-hmm. in terms of expressing right. emotion totally. and anger. And I remember in my first year of recovery- Uh, the times that I kind of had a homework night that I'd really set aside time to work on my lesson. And man, as I was getting towards that time, I would just feel myself like getting angry. And I'm like, what is Mm -hmm. wrong? Like just, ugh. And and as I processed that with my wife and my group, it was realizing I'm I'm having to go into these lessons and face stuff that I know is there and I've never really dealt with or faced very well. And so it's just knowing like there's gonna be a lot of emotion and I don't like it. And a part of me wanted to just, use anger to like power up and control it or run away from it and just had to keep working through that. And, and I think that's a reality for many people. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you have, a, have ever had a bad sliver, a deep one that every time it touches something, you're feeling a little bit of pain, but you know, eventually it's got to come out. Yeah. Like you've got to go deal with it. And when yeah. that happens, that, there's going to be a lot of pain for totally. a little bit of time because yep. you're getting it out of there. Mm-hmm. But you know, like if I will go through this, it will get better. And that's a little bit what like recovery and group is like, you can just keep having the little bit of pain from relapse and it keeps coming up and, Mm -hmm. or you can face the deeper pain of getting it out of there. And it will be probably worse and more intense for a time so that it can get better. I, it's probably just because of the season we're in, but I keep thinking of my youngest Brooks, you know, we're at the phase now where he's not allowed to have his binky throughout the day, just at nap time. And at long nap time is what my kids call it. Long nap. (laughs) is sleeping at night. But it's that idea of we use, he uses his binky to soothe himself when he's uncomfortable or there is pain or he's unsure or he's insecure. That adds safety and security. And for so many of us, that's what our addiction was, is it was something to soothe ourselves. Um, And, you know, obviously that has way different consequences than a binky does. But over time, Brooks is going to, he's learning and developing that he isn't always going to have that. And so I think that that means he's going to have to feel those feelings and he's going to have to feel that pain and not have that to soothe him. And so I just think of it that way with our addiction, that we are going to feel those things that we haven't, as you guys have already said, but that imagery just helps me think yeah, through totally. it because that's something that we all use to soothe. Totally. So the fifth tip, and we're kind of alluding to this, but to speak more directly, it's, it's not just about pain and anger. In general, we want to feel your feelings. Ashley, what do we mean by that? Feel your feelings. Well, we can't really deal with anything until we know what's driving it. And I know that for John and I, when we started on this journey, we both would, you know, we would understand anger. I'm angry. I'm sad, you know, just basic feelings, but we never really stopped to consider what was driving our feelings. And so, um, you know, allowing yourself to go deep and figure out the thought that's behind the feeling, figure out, 
where that's coming from, figuring out if there's a lie attached to it. Mm -hmm. Those things are going to help in your recovery so much. So instead of me running around all crazy before, you know, I entered into recovery, I would just always be running really high and speeding up and anxiety. And part of my childhood story is I wasn't really allowed to express my feelings because every time I did, they were diminished. They were, you know, medically explained away like, oh, you're just hormonal or whatever. Um, And so I learned that expressing your feelings wasn't safe at a really early age. And then I just shut that part of myself off. And so going into group and saying, why do I feel like this? Why do I feel so anxious that I need to medicate myself to, to get rid of this anxiety? Or why do I feel so much pain and I can't handle it in a normal way? And mm-hmm. so I really had to start just like very elementary of, okay, I'm feeling something in my body. What is it? What did I just think? What just happened? Who yeah. just called me? What did I just experience? And then as I was able to trace it back, and you guys have heard my story of like feeling angry whenever I would see my twins and then being able to trace it back that, wow, I'm feeling this anger when I see them. Why would I feel anger when I see them? They've done nothing wrong. And I was able to just continue to trace it back to realize, you know, like they were just a visual trigger of some really bad abuse that I experienced in my previous marriage. And and then I was able to start thinking in a different way and mm-hmm. practicing responding in a different way. So you really have to get a hold of your feelings and allow yourself yeah. to feel them so you can change them. And with my women, I will say, you know, put your feelings in a box if you need to and allow yourself just baby steps to pull it down for group or pull mm. it down for homework like you did, Nick. But give yourself, I always say treat yourself and I will send them the little like Donna off mm-hmm. Parks and Rec, you know, <laughs> treat yourself. I'll send them the little gif. Right. I'll say treat yourself before and afterward, you know, put a candle on, get a warm drink, like give yourself space, let yourself feel those feelings, whether it's homework or group. Yeah. And then know that afterward you Put that box away, especially if you're somebody who continues to be traumatized mm-hmm. by it, or, or maybe we'll go into relapse or are vulnerable that you put that box away. And then you go do something really healthy. Like if you like exercising, you want to hang out with friends, yeah. and then slowly, you're going to get more comfortable letting those feelings out. And you won't have to have these moments during yeah. the week where you allow yourself. So it's a progress of allowing yourself to learn what it feels like to to be with those feelings. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of us in, and I know this is my experience, I've heard a lot from people too who grow up in the church that we're told, or at least it's implied that our emotions are bad or they're wrong, or they're, they're things that we shouldn't focus on or pay attention to. You know, I had a mentor when I was uh, in college who said to me, you say, I feel a lot. Stop saying that. Say, I think. And for me, I, I remember where we were. I remember the beer I had in my hand as we were drinking it. Like I remember that moment and it seared so deeply into my brain because what I was being taught at that moment is that emotions are bad and emotions are not bad because if they were bad, why would God literally create us with the ability to feel yeah. them? Like it's And Jesus built in, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Who's weeping, you know, Absolutely. grieving. Absolutely. And it's like, and even before Jesus like walked the earth, though theologically you talk about him being in the garden, whatever. Like God had those emotions as well. He experienced it all throughout the Old Testament as well. And so I think that's something that a lot of us run up against when we think about this idea of feeling our feelings. But the best way I've heard it described, at least for me, the way that I I like to think of it is that our emotions are icons that show up on our dashboard. They should inform us that something is going on under the surface. It doesn't mean that I need to like quit my job or lose that friendship or stop doing this activity But it is just something that as that emotion, Ashley, as you said, is coming up or you're feeling it somewhere in your body, that it should just be something that you're curious about and you start to explore because there's something going on under the surface. And usually Mm -hmm. those are things that are important to dive into. Yeah. Yeah. I I think what we want to look at with, there I said, I think, maybe I should say I feel. (laughs) I feel that what we should look at is is how often anger is a masking emotion. Anger is about covering up something else I'm feeling. And so Mm -hmm. anytime we're getting angry, like I was doing my workbook lessons, I should ask the question, what what is this anger covering over? And Mm -hmm. for a lot of men in particular, I think those two primary emotions they're covering over are fear and grief, because Mm -hmm. men aren't supposed to be afraid and men aren't supposed to cry or be sad. Yeah. Because that's not, in whatever way we've defined manliness, like men are confident, men are, Mm -hmm. you know, able to do anything. And so we use anger rather than acknowledging I'm afraid or I feel grief. And I I think that's what happened for me a lot, especially in the first year or two of recovery, was realizing how many places I just needed to let myself go back and grieve. 
and be okay with, you know, for me being a performer and wanting to win and be the best and a three on the Enneagram, you know, I, I had huge ideals like in high school of college of being the all state athlete. Yeah. And the truth was I wasn't. And, and so I internalized a message of I'm not good enough and I needed to face that I'm not good enough message. But at the same time, I needed to grieve some realities that I wasn't good enough yeah. in basketball or football to be all state. Now, but that didn't mean mm -hmm. that had anything to do with my character, worth, or value, right. Right. but to yeah. grieve like I wasn't all state. I wasn't the, the athlete I dreamed of being. And just to grieve that so that I could get to a place of acceptance, like, you know what? It's okay. Not everyone in the world has to yeah. be, you know, the star of the team. Right. And if I wasn't, and if I don't grieve that, what instead was happening is I was just taking the anger from not being good enough in that one area and then putting it into the next. Like, well, I'll prove it. I'll do better next time. I'll yeah. be the better, you know, the better pastor or student or whatever, because it just fueled the need to perform. And if, yeah. if I wasn't willing to look behind the anger to see the fear and grief that I was masking that I hadn't been good enough, I would just keep perpetuating performance into the next thing until, you know, my dying day, still trying to prove that, gosh, darn it, I'm good enough. Yeah. And so I think for me, it was that place of saying, I can grieve that I wasn't good enough in that sport, yeah. but that I am good enough as a man for oh. God and others and that the two are not connected. So yeah. you've, you've got to get behind the anger and yeah. say, what am I masking here? Well, and I think to Ashley's point, we hear that a lot growing up. Like you think of those moments where, you know, I can think of moments where I made, you know, at a baseball game, I struck out three times, which is just terrible. It's the worst feeling in baseball. Like if anybody mm -hmm. out there knows, it's just the hat trick. Like it's not good. And maybe I'm feeling sad in that moment or my coach, my parents, someone is just like, oh, you'll get them next time. And yeah. what they're trying to do is they're there. They don't want me to get caught and stuck in that emotion. And by trying to like help me, what they end up doing is like saying, no, no, dismiss how you're feeling. It doesn't really matter. Like it's okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of us were taught whether people intended to or not, that we're not supposed to feel our emotions. And so I think in this tip specifically, if you're early on in your recovery journey, find those places, find those spots, those lies that you were taught about your emotions and really press into that and figure out, is what I was being told in that moment actually true? Because when it comes to feelings, I'm just going to say it. I don't think Christians, we handle it super well. I don't think that we're innately great at this. And so go and find those because I think that that's going to be helpful in your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've definitely been guilty of saying to my 12-year-old and my Kyrus, stop being dramatic. You're being dramatic. You're always being, you know, <laughs> okay, I need to quit saying those things because their feelings are real. They're very high right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, and some of those, like to go along with what you said, some of the things we learn, you know, or don't learn, you know, that are okay is going back. We'll, we'll hear things like leave the past in the past. You don't need to go dig up old business. Yeah. Um, you know, just forgive and forget, move on. Um, that's been taken care of Jesus. We don't need to go dig it up. So why do we want people then to not be afraid to go to the past and look at things like family of origin and woundedness that they might have? Yeah. So the sixth tip, don't be afraid to look back. So I think um, this is just what comes to mind right now, right now in the moment is you look at like the garden and when God came to Adam and he's like, no, 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 <laughs> it's the woman you gave me. Like it wasn't me. It was her, you know? And then she was like, no, 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 it was the serpent. Like it wasn't me. There, we have this tendency to, to do that, I think, as humans, to blame shift. And I think that, that there's a fear that we have of if we identify how someone else has hurt us in our family, that we're somehow blame shifting or saying, well, it's mommy and daddy's fault because they were mean to me and they yelled at me and blah, blah, blah. Like when we say look back, that's not what we mean. Like now, I mean, I've heard Nick say this a lot is like, did, were you raised by Jesus? No, you weren't. You were raised by your parents. Are your parents perfect? No? Okay, cool. So they're sinful and they raised you, which means that you experienced sin and brokenness in your upbringing. And it's okay to point to those moments and, and identify how they hurt us, how they wounded us, and then how we reacted in health or unhealth to those things. And that's where addiction really is fueled, is looking back at, you know, and I've told this story recently um, to a, a number, I can't even remember, I feel like I've talked about it on the podcast recently, but I make this unbelievable catch in baseball uh, at 13 years old. And then I hear the message from the parents in the stand that I'm a ball hog, which isn't true. And I'm going to, I will die on this hill. You cannot be a ball hog in baseball there. I said it again. Okay. 
But in that I moment, feel like there's still some trauma you're working I'm fine. through there, Trevor. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Is that why you keep bringing this story up on the podcast? <laughs> I don't want to talk about my feelings. We've been, ta- we've been talking about that in my friend group that if you say fine twice, you're okay. But if you say fine, it's almost like a negative times a negative is a positive, but the third one makes it negative again. It's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> But I think for me, what I was taught in that moment is I'll never be good enough. And looking back, uh, you can see that pattern throughout my addiction. You can see that there were moments where <clears throat> there were moments where I didn't feel good enough or I experienced failure. And for me, I ran to those sexual relationships or to pornography to soothe myself, to find you know fulfillment or pleasure, somehow to get away from those negative feelings. And so for me, looking back on my story, when I identify that that was a really wounding moment for me, it's not saying that Brent Holbrook's mom is the reason why my addiction, like why I was an addict. You know, it wasn't. But that was a pillar moment where I was yeah. taught something or internalized the message that wasn't true. And so, did that person do something wrong in the moment? Sure, sure. Like you know, and sometimes maybe it isn't something that someone did wrong. But it, just because I look back and identify that person or that moment as a part of what fueled my addiction, it doesn't mean that that person's responsible. But what that does is it helps me go back and identify those raw messages so that I can change what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of that great quote by Gabor Mate that says, trauma isn't what happened to you. Mm. Trauma is what happened inside of you. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. why we need to go back to understand where did false messages come from? Where do I have core beliefs that are not rooted in Christ, but are rooted in my pain? And I, I've even heard well-intentioned Christians say there's no point in going back because Christ has redeemed our past. And yeah. I, I think they mean well, but that totally misses the boat that, yes, Christ has redeemed the, the past sin, the, the set us free from that, but he doesn't magically erase everything that happened. Because totally. the truth is we are today a byproduct, a, an outcome of everything that's happened yep. in our past. Yep. And if we can't invite Christ to meet us in those past moments, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's... We're, we're not going to experience much freedom. It, it also makes me think of one of the theories um, of, of the atonement, of like why Christ came. One of them actually centers around not just his death, and as Christians, we get so focused on the death of Christ, but one of them is, is uh, called the theory of recapitulation that talks about how Christ's life, the way that he lived a perfect, sinless life, he was actually becoming the new Adam. Mm-hmm. Because along the way where well, Adam had made sinful choices, Christ made redemptive God-honoring choices, and it was actually his sinless life yeah. that redeemed our broken past and the brokenness of our lives. And I just, I've always thought that's such a cool idea that not only does Christ's death kind of cover over my death, but Christ's perfect life is laid over all the brokenness and pain of my life. Yeah. And that's not to ignore it then, it's to give us freedom to look at how have I been shaped, how have I been formed. Mm-hmm. I, I think also of Jesus in John chapter four, you know, who says to the woman at the well, um, you know, go and get your husband. And she's like, uh, I have no husband. He's like, you know, you're right. The truth is you've had five husbands and the man you're living with mm-hmm. now is not your husband. Uh, I see Jesus in that moment. There's, he doesn't have to bring that up. And, and is he shaming her? I, that's not Christ. Jesus mm-hmm. isn't there to shame her. No. I think it's an invitation to her to say, I know your past. I know you're wounding. I mm-hmm. know what you've been through. And I need you to understand that the things I'm about to reveal to you about who I am come through that grid of knowing you completely. And yeah. I think that's so liberating for you and I, if when we realize that, that when God speaks his love over us or his grace, it's not in this like perfect little moment where all he sees is Jesus. It's actually through the grid of him knowing all of my stuff mm-hmm. and all of my pain. And when he says, I love you or my grace is for you, it's like, wow, now that means something yeah. because it's all of who I am, not just erasing the past. So there's so much value in going back. Yeah. I just hope that people really can open their heart and mind to see maybe there's some invitation there that Christ has for me to go and understand his love in light of my past. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I was always thinking too, like, I guess I'm really logical and working in the medical field for so many years, I think about, you know, I had this chronic illness for 23 years and it got to a place where I thought I was going to have to quit work and maybe die. And when I went to the doctor, he's like, asking me about my symptoms from when I was 13 years old, he's trying to put a whole story together of how I got to this place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's what I try to remind the women that come into my group that in no way are we trying to blame parents or, or things, you know, people around you, but everything we experience shapes us. I mean, to, to the environment we live in, it shows us what color we are or, you know, how tan we are. I mean, like every area of our life shapes who we are and how we function and especially in relationships. And so 
you know, I would hope that my kids have grace with me knowing, you know, your, your little attachment brain was developed by the time mm-hmm. it was like six years old and I was not at my healthiest. So I'm sorry for that, but I want to also be fully aware that my negative behaviors and positive behaviors shape who they are and how they attach to people and how they cope with wounds. And so, um, yeah, we just can't escape being touched by people that we do life with. Yeah. And I think that there's, I just, as you guys are both talking, I'm just like, gosh, there's so many things, even as a dad now that I can do. There's just really practical things I can do to help create a place uh, inside of my house that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to limit as much damage as I can, you know, in that. So thanks for the dose of conviction. Uh, moving on, last <laughs> and seventh tip uh, when on the recovery journey from addiction is to embrace the power of self-care. Yes, this is an important one because for, uh, I think, addicts in particular, the ways we have learned to practice self-care have been damaging, have been hurtful, whether it's Mm -hmm. pornography, alcohol, acting out in other ways that have created patterns of sin and shame and secrecy. And so it's kind of the great um, reversal of our struggle is to say, what will I do instead? What are things that in my life can bring me those feelings of peace? joy, connection, contentment, because at the end of the day, at that base level, that's what my heart and mind are really looking for. We, we are wired mm-hmm. for pleasure. We are wired to experience those dopamine hits. But the way God intended is that that dopamine would come from really healthy ways, like being around people that encourage us, having fun experiences with our kids, making memories, uh, going and exercising, going for a hike and seeing something beautiful. I mean, when you're when you're standing looking at a waterfall or staring up at the stars in the sky, there are little amounts of dopamine that are going through your system. It's just like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. It, it's not negative in any way. It's, it's what we need. And yeah. so it's just the question of, in recovery, what will be my instead? Mm-hmm. You know, Paul says in Galatians 5.13 that do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, use it to serve one another in love. Yeah. And, and I would just ask the question for us as we're walking towards freedom, what will our instead be? Mm. So instead of numbing out with pornography, I will join a basketball league. Instead of you know numbing out in social media, I will play with my kids. I'll, I'll start a game club. I'll go to a, a book club. Like whatever it is, for everyone, it's different. And I, yeah. I don't think there's any like, we'll just do these three things. And mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk a lot on the podcast about diet and exercise. And if, if those aren't all that important to you, that's fine. But there's probably other things that are, you know, maybe it's a hunting club or shooting your, your gun, whatever the things are that just like, man, you love it. Plan it into your day, plan it into your week, plan it into your routines. Because when we replace those healthy outlets of dopamine, it's not that we're, we're not just going back to the old behavior, but we find we don't need it. Yep. And that's why we say so often, we're not here to change a behavior. We're here to change the way you do life. And it is self-care mm-hmm. uh, with the help of God and others that over the long haul truly transforms your brain and your patterns. Yeah, I always think of it like my visual image is an, a bowling alley with the little bumpers up that our mm-hmm. self-care is like self-care bumper, self-care bumper. And so me knowing that I am going to St. Louis next week, and that means John's going to be home with the kids for four days, I could already see he was getting like seasonal depressive disorder because we live in this area where it snowed eight inches last week and you know and I'm like I'm starting to pick up the signs like oh this is going to be very vulnerable to leave him home with the kids for four days <laughs> he might come back a monster and so I asked him I was like how are you doing he's like a little stress a little tense cabin fever I need to get out you know and so on Easter I just said go to the cabin and spend the night in the woods by yourself and just get some self-care and he came back such a different person yep. and then we said and when I get back from St. Louis go again. <laughs> so it's like this bumper of, <laughs> yeah, we know a hard, things. like we know a challenging week is coming up because mm-hmm. he's going to have kids, sports, activities, school, all of it, the cats, you know? So it was like, okay, we can, we can see that. Yeah. And we've learned from our past behaviors that this is a vulnerable time. You know, it will be stressful. So get some help, self-care on the front end and then let's plan it on the back yeah. end too. And, and he came back just looking like he was more ready to have the kids home for four days after being out there, you know, and chopping wood and doing whatever he was doing out there. So I like to buffer my hard times Mm -hmm. in life that I can see. Yeah. I think of self-care being the, we talk about the three circles tool um, where the center circle is relapse, what we're trying to avoid the middle circle guardrails we put in place to protect us. And then the outer circle, the green circle is stuff that we do to pursue health, those instead things. 
Um, you know, but I, I think to your point, Ashley, that self-care for me, the way I've started thinking about it is that it's something that improves my relationship with myself, with other people, and with God. Um, and so finding something that pushes me into better connection with myself, better connection with the Lord, better connection with other people. Um, and so finding those things, like for me, journaling is a great way to connect with the Lord and with myself. I'm starting to experience my inner world and, you know, expressing it with the Lord. And then group is a place where I get to invite other people into that. And so finding those things that are helpful and healthy for you. Um, Cause I, I wrote down the same thing you were talking about, yeah. Nick, just that it's your addiction was self-care. It was just in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah, and this is where if you're in a group, that weekly commitment to change at the mm-hmm. end is so crucial. I mean, it's it's really a question about what will you do this week for self-care? And I think early on in a group, you may be answering that commitment to change question often in the negative, like, well, this week I don't want yeah, to. I won't. Do you know, I, yeah. I won't waste time on social media. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to pornography. Right. I won't you know, engage in that unhealthy relationship. And and I think that's totally normal because yeah. we we're more quickly to identify the things we need to remove. Totally. But as we're getting healthy, more often than not, your commitment to change should be some kind of proactive, like, here's what I will do. And just like you were saying, Ashley, I think that's what helped me is it taught me to look ahead versus always living in the moment to say, what in this coming week will be my danger zones? Mm -hmm. When am I going to be alone, stressed out, overtired, overworked? Because that's the reality of life. We're going to have busy seasons. We're going to have hard Mm -hmm. times. And if we've thought ahead of time how to deal proactively with Mm -hmm. I'm going to pursue a guy's night out where we go and shoot pool for a couple of hours because I just know how that will refuel me. Or I'm going to, I'm going to take extra time to go for a hike or to, to get out with my spouse and have a date night. When we're proactive about self-care, yeah. then, then we're already managing the, the potential risk or threat of those trigger areas or places where we're likely to be tempted. And when we're doing that week in and week out through that commitment to change, um, it's really transformational. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I think, listener, just know that these are not like the seven foundational things to recovery, but these are just seven tips that as we reflected, we realized that these are things that are helpful as you're starting that journey. Just know that, you know, if you can check all these boxes, it's not like a perfect formula for recovery, but these are things that, you know, maybe to use Ashley's language, those are, these are those bumper things that help you reorient and realign to the direction that you want to go in recovery and yeah, we hope that these seven tips were helpful. Yeah, things we wish we would have known at the start <laughs> oh, of our man. journey. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Uh, go see a movie, you know, Young Trev, who's starting recovery. Go see a movie alone every month. It's good for you, that kind of thing. Because um, I wish I would have done that more often. Anyways, yeah. that's enough about me. Ashley, thank you so much for your time with us today and just helping us out with this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. And wherever you're at on your journey, Pure Desire is here to help create a roadmap for your healing. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual brokenness or betrayal trauma, go to puredesire.org and let's start the healing journey today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Each week we put out new content to help you on the road to healing and freedom. And lastly, never stop being healthy.